0: This is the Intego Mac Podcast. The voice of Mac security. For December 7th, 2018. In this week's episode, how to choose a new Mac for the things you need it for. Plus, Touch ID scam apps make it into the App Store. How secure is Apple's content caching? And Tom Cruise strikes again. The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego makers of security and utility software exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long.
1: We've talked many times on this podcast about how Apple's app store is generally safe. Apps are reviewed. There are generally no security issues. There's almost never anything that we would consider to be malware in the App Store, the Mac App Store. But an interesting scam was discovered recently where people would buy a health app on an iOS device, and they were told that if they used Touch ID that it would take a heart rate measurement. Now, I guess people don't really understand what Touch ID does. It can't do anything that actually moves, right? It just detects the ridges in your fingers, You may, however, remember that before Apple had the Apple Watch, there were apps on the iPhone that could measure your heart rate if you put your finger in front of the flash next to the camera, because the camera lens and that light would be able to detect the movement of blood in your capillaries. So this app would prompt you to press your thumb or your finger on Touch ID in order to do something that seemed normal, and briefly it would show an in-app purchase pop-up, dim the screen, and go away, and it would charge you anywhere from $90 to $120.
2: That's a pretty serious scam. Yeah, the fact that this made it into the App Store is, I think, what's most concerning. And not just, I mean, anybody could program something like this. And it's clever. Uh, It's clearly (laughs) very unethical. Um, But just the fact that this made it into the App Store, that multiple applications, it's not like it was just one app. There were heart rate monitors, fitness apps, calorie trackers. How did all of these apps make it into the App Store on iOS and get past Apple's approval process? That's that's what's most shocking to me.
1: Yeah, and, and I was wondering if there's not some way that apps can download some kind of content to update what they do. And of course this shouldn't be possible, right? Because you're supposed to submit an app for approval every time you do an update. But I use a banking app, and every once in a while, when I launch the app, I get a screen saying, updating app, be patient, something like that with a progress bar. Now, this is an app for a multinational bank that's present in 150 countries. When this first happened, I was kind of worried, is some kind of man in the middle going on here? Because you don't expect that in a banking app. But since apps can contain things like web pages and JavaScript and all, is it possible that they might have a way of downloading additional content without it seeming like an update? It is possible. And in fact,
2: this is something that security researchers have been warning people about for years. And it's also something that Apple frowns upon. They don't really want you to add content into your app, add features and things like that as a post installation download. Specifically for this reason, because it makes it possible for developers to do nasty things. We don't know for sure that that's exactly what happened in this case. That it was something added after the fact, but either way, this is something that really should have been caught before it ever made it into the
1: app store. Interestingly, this doesn't work with Face ID.
2: Right? Yeah, because the way that this scam works, they're they're telling you, "Oh yeah, just put your finger here." Well, it doesn't work if you try to translate that into face id because well you're always looking at your device and so apple has this extra step that you've got to do in order to approve a purchase an in-app purchase or or otherwise you have to actually double tap on the power button in order to authorize face id when you're in app so yeah, the scam doesn't quite work the same way if you have a Face ID enabled device.
1: Yeah, I guess an app could like put a circle on the screen and tell you to put your thumb on it, and <laughs> some people would think that that's entirely possible. That you know, this screen does all sorts of wonderful things. Maybe it can detect your 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 pulse, but then it would have to. Well, that's a that's a plausible case. So it tells you to put your thumb on the thing, and then it flashes a little bit like it's taking a reading, and then the quick dialogue, and you have to press twice because it's going to tell you you have to press twice to save it or something. You know, there are people who could fall for that. I suppose, yeah. It's a
2: little bit more complicated. So Touch ID has been a problem actually in the past because it just pops up so quickly. And if someone can trick you into already putting your finger down there and getting ready to activate Touch ID, well, you know, that that's a lot easier to pull off.
1: Yep. okay. In other news, something interesting came out about HTTPS and encryption, and we've talked about HTTPS, the secure version of HTTP. That's the protocol that sends and receives data to and from websites. It's used with email, it's used with a number of different types of data that you transfer. And Wired had an article explaining that iTunes doesn't encrypt downloads on purpose. Now, they're talking about iTunes, but also the App Store, probably iOS, and the Mac App Store. It's really important to use HTTPS, but Apple has a very good reason to not use HTTPS here.
2: Right, yeah. The article says that it's because of content caching. Apple has this technology that's available for Macs that you can enable, and it'll cache apps that you download. And uh, it makes it so that you're, you don't have to be using up more of your data connection you know, if you're in a country or, you know, or maybe you're even using your mobile hotspot as your internet service provider, and you may have caps on how much data you can download. So for that reason, Apple has a feature built into Macs now that does content caching. It's the same technology that's actually been around for many years as part of Mac OS server. And now it's something that's part of Mac OS, the standard operating system that everybody has that you can enable. And so supposedly, because of content caching, that's why Apple is not encrypting this data in transit, because they want to make sure that it's possible for some other computer to cache and to download
1: and cache that content so it can redistribute it. Right. Because when you set up an HTTPS connection, it is between a given device and the web server. But that Mac that's in the middle that's going to cache the content is actually kind of what we call a man in the middle in some ways. When you have content caching turned on, the device declares itself on the network and all your other devices know to look for a Mac that is using content caching and will request data through that Mac whenever you're getting anything from Apple services, the iTunes store, even files that you store in iCloud and the app stores. So the point of this is not only for data caps, but let's say that you're in a business and you've got a thousand people with iPhones, rather than have a thousand people downloading the latest update to iOS, the first person who downloads it puts it into the cache and everyone else gets it locally. And this makes things a lot smoother for a business or even a home user. If you're a family of four and and you've got four iOS devices, every time you get an iOS update, these updates will be cached. Now, one thing to note is that apps for the iPhone and the iPad are different. So when you download a given app, to your iPad, it's gonna be cached, but when you download it to your iPhone, it won't be able to use the cached version because it's gonna be downloading the iPhone version. So caching works in some situations, but it doesn't work every place. Now, the real question is, can this be used for pulling off a practical
2: attack, something that could actually be used against somebody? It's, It's a little bit difficult to imagine a scenario where that could go perfectly smoothly and you know so so here here's the thing so you've got to download a particular app from the app store if somebody knew that you were going to be downloading a particular app at a particular time and and they had sufficient time to develop a malicious version of that app cuz they couldn't just modify it because apple does sign code to confirm that it really is from the developer you you're expecting it to be from so they would have to develop a new app that looks like your app that you're impersonating. and that has the
1: same name. It, yeah, it would it would have to look the same, have the same name. And that is code signed, but by a different developer. Because that code signing, if the app were altered and it used the original developer certificate, it wouldn't be recognized. Yet it has to be a different developer's account who still code signs. This is like... This is high-level Tom Cruise stuff. This really is. (laughs) Right. Now, this is all theoretical.
2: This is just kind of us thinking out loud here about a possible scenario where you might be able to exploit this. I think it's not a very practical attack. There are a lot of much easier ways to attack somebody than to go through all this trouble. So, you know, is it a real big problem? Probably not, but it still makes us really uncomfortable, the idea that, Apple is intentionally sending any code out not over a secure connection.
1: Yeah, this isn't a big deal when you download music or movies because it really doesn't matter that much. Your music is going to play or it isn't. Your music's not going to contain malware. But the the idea of apps coming unencrypted is, is a little bit strange. Now, the article says that the Google Play Store seems to have found a way around this caching mechanism. But when we were talking before the show, we really couldn't figure out how that would work I assume that Google has some way of caching apps on some devices. I don't know how it works. I'd be interested to find out how Google does this. Maybe they treat the caching device as a proxy instead of treating it as like a server the way Apple does. Does that make sense? I don't know. I mean, the
2: article in Wired is really vague. I mean, they have... Uh, two sentences that supposedly explain how Google has this figured out and then they don't explain it. So um, we're left kind of wondering, <laughs> okay, so what did Google do then? And it's not clear. Maybe Google has it figured out, but uh, it, it's it's not clear what it is that they're doing if they really do have this caching over HT- with HTTPS figured out.
1: Okay, as long as we mention Tom Cruise, I think it's worth pointing out that Tom Cruise is on a bit of a crusade. See what I did there? (laughs) Um, He tweeted a video this week, and I'll link to his tweet in the show notes. He says, I'm taking a quick break from filming to tell you the best way to watch Miss Impossible, Fallout, or any movie you love at home. Now, there is a feature on modern TVs. It's called frame interpolation or motion smoothing or... The derogatory term is the soap opera effect, I guess because it makes it look like cheap video soap opera filming. It's true that a lot of people have this turned on on their TV, and it makes action movies, movies that, that where, where there's a lot of movement, look particularly bad. You'll watch the video. It's currently got 4.8 million views, so this is really quite popular. And then what you should do is you should Google uh, motion smoothing or frame interpolation with your brand of TV and dig into the settings now i checked on my tv i have an lg tv that i bought about two and a half years ago and i was able to find a website that explained how to find it in the settings and of course the settings were different from the article i i read and i got to it and i don't remember they have their own name for this and it was turned off so i don't remember if i turned this off when i got the tv or if maybe it wasn't on by default apparently most people writing about this are saying on most TVs, it is on by default. Hmm, interesting.
2: I'll have to check out my TV. It, does this really make that big of a difference, though? I'm curious.
1: You know what? I'm going to try it, because I was planning to rent Mission Impossible Fallout this evening. So it might be worth watching the movie and then coming <laughs> okay. back afterwards and turning the setting on to see how it looks. Yeah, at least jump to the real high-motion scenes and see what, yeah. the, what the, the difference is, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about which Mac you might want to buy if you need a new Mac.
0: If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Intigo's new Mac User Center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intigo's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac podcast listeners can get 50% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego content barrier and much more to help protect secure and organize your mac download the free trial of mac premium bundle x9 from Intego.com today and then use the promo code IntegoPodcast podcast at checkout to save 50 that's intigo podcast to save 50 percent on complete mac protection and security with Intego's mac premium bundle x9 Intego devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intigo.com today.
1: So in other security news, Josh, you wrote an article on the Intigo Mac security blog about privacy exodus, spam delivers Mac spyware. What's the latest Mac spyware spam scam attack we have here? <laughs> okay, so basically this
2: is real simple. There was what seems like a somewhat targeted attack where people who use a particular blockchain assets app, so a a cryptocurrency wallet. So if you had Bitcoin and you wanted to store it on your computer, you would want a wallet app to, to store that. So evidently, some people who were using this program called Exodus were sent an email that at a quick glance might appear to be a notification from the developer that there's an update to the Exodus app and there's an attachment, it's a zip file, and it contains an app. And so people might download that and install it. And it turns out it's not actually an update from the developer. As a matter of fact, you will never ever, I've never in my life seen a legitimate developer send out an update to their app as an email attachment. Developers don't do this. Yes,
1: but anything to do with cryptocurrency isn't really legitimate. <laughs> so these are these are people who are already living on the edge with something that's... I mean, they're using their electricity to make phantom money. <laughs> they have some strange beliefs to start with. <laughs> okay. Wow. Okay, you're making them sound a little bit like Tom Cruise. It's worth pointing out that I just looked at my... And yes, I still use Dashboard. I have the stock widget on Dashboard. And Bitcoin that was around $20,000 in January is now $3,600. So (laughs) QED. Okay. Let let me just say, this is real
2: simple. Don't download attachments from emails that you're not expecting. If you get an email that's supposedly from a developer, even if it's a program that you use and it has a zip file attached and says, here, download and update your program, no developer is going to do that. That's not how this stuff works. Any legitimate normal Mac app is going to update through a process that is in the app itself. And you might sometimes have to manually trigger an app update by going to the the name of the app in the menu next to right next to the Apple menu. And sometimes they'll have a check for update. Um, sometimes you might have to manually initiate an update check that way.
1: And sometimes you may need to actually go to a website to download an update. I've had a couple of cases recently, in fact, where there would be an update alert for an app that says you can't download this update because they changed something in the updater code and you have to go to the website to download a new version of the app. Yeah, I have seen that too.
2: Yeah, at least in that case though, it's your app that's telling you- Exactly. And giving you a direct link to where to go to get that new version. It's very different from getting an email that, you know, emails, headers are spoofable, meaning that, Somebody could pretend. I mean, in this case, the email comes from uh, no-reply at update-exodus.io.
1: <laughs> I hope we don't get in trouble for a copyright violation for me just humming those few notes.
2: No, no, it's okay. Plus, I was talking over you, so. <laughs> okay. Well, that was the point. I wanted to have the background music there. But somebody could pretend they could actually be. It could show up as no reply at exodus.io, which is exodus.io is the legitimate website. It could show up that way, even though it wasn't actually sent from their server. It's possible to even do that. So you can't trust any email that that's coming if it's got a link in it, and it tells you something really important with your account or your app. You know needs to be updated or checked out go to the actual developer's website. Hopefully, ideally, you have it bookmarked already. But if not, hey, do a search for it on, you know, whatever search engine you prefer to use. And typically, it's going to be one of the first non-sponsored links that shows up in the search results.
1: Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about some things you can buy because it's that time of year, isn't it? I wrote an article on the Intego Max security blog about the Sonos One speaker, and I compared it with the Apple HomePod, which I reviewed some months ago on the blog, I bought a Sonos One speaker to put in my kitchen. I didn't want to spend the cost of a HomePod. And I was really, really impressed by the quality of the sound that comes from the Sonos One. As I've said from the beginning, the HomePod has a sound signature. It's very bassy. It's very boomy. And you have no way of changing that. There's no equalization settings for the HomePod, whereas the Sonos is extremely neutral, plus you can adjust the bass and treble, and there's a loudness setting. I think some people might want more detailed EQ settings for the Sonos, but, I mean, that's better than what you get with the HomePod. At $350 for a HomePod and $200 for the Sonos, which was actually $25 off on Black Friday, I would say it's almost a no-brainer to go for the Sonos. Now, the only difference is, do you really depend on Siri? Because the HomePod is the only speaker that has Siri. The Sonos has Alexa, so if you depend on Alexa, you might want that. But to be honest, if you're buying a speaker for the sound quality, don't buy it because of which assistant it has. If you wanna use Alexa, spend $25 for the little Echo Dot, or if you wanna use Siri, well, you've got an iPhone or a watch or whatever.
2: Yeah, I agree. It's not something that is a main feature of these products. Most of the time, if you're buying a product like this, you're, you're buying it to listen to music. And so you want something that's going to have a really good quality, It's going to play your music in a good quality, right? That's kind of the main thing. So I wouldn't worry too much. I agree on that point that there's no reason to really worry too much about what digital assistant comes on this
1: device. Yeah. You you have some Amazon Echo devices, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've,
2: I've got a couple of Echo devices that I got for free. Maybe it was because somebody was targeting me and they offered See? me
1: <laughs> <There you go. laughs> free devices. I'd be suspicious of any free tech stuff these days. Hmm.
2: Yeah. I have a couple of uh, Amazon Echo devices. I've got an original Echo, and then I've got an Echo Dot. But I leave them muted most of the time. There is a button on the top that you can press to, to keep it muted.
1: Well, with the Sonos One, you don't have to turn on Alexa at all. It's In the Sonos app, you decide whether you want to use Alexa. Ah, even better. And just as with my HomePods... That are in the bedroom i have siri turned off there i have alexa turned off in the kitchen
2: yeah in fact if you have the opportunity to turn it off do it i i I, honestly you don't
1: need uh, an assistant on this type of device so it's the time of year when a lot of people buy computers and so i've written an article for the intigo mac security blog called how to choose the right mac for your use case i know josh you told us last week that you were building your own computer that would run like a Mac, uh-huh. and that you didn't go for like a cheap model. But if you were going to buy a Mac today for just standard use, which would you pick? You've, you've got the choice between a desktop and a laptop. You've got the choice between the iMac and the Mac mini. And in the laptop, you've got a wide range of of models and prices. What would you pick today?
2: Yeah. I Well, I, obviously, I thought a lot about this before I decided to build my own. and. What I would probably go with is, especially since it was just recently updated, is the Mac Mini. I think I would get, you know, just a cheap monitor and, um, and hook up a Mac Mini to it. It's about the best price that you can get for a Mac. It doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles, but it's really a, a decent computer, especially now that they've finally updated it.
1: Yeah, it is. It's true that if you want the all-in-one, obviously the iMac is your only choice, some of us have been using Mac products long enough to remember when there were, you know, a plethora of choices in different price ranges and different feature sets and all that. And in a way, it's simpler now. You either get a 21 and a half or a 27 inch iMac or you get the Mac Mini. Of course, laptops are another story. If you do have the money, that iMac Pro is pretty cool. It's got like a gazillion cores in it and it's space gray, which I guess space gray makes it run faster or something like that. It's quite an impressive Mac, but there's not many people who really need that. No, that's true. But but if you do need something
2: with a lot of processing power, interestingly, the iMac Pro is a much better option than the Mac Pro, which at this point is so many years old that I've stopped counting.
1: Yeah, and, and Apple has said they're going to update the Mac Pro next year, and we'll see. And We, we keep hearing that. Yes. So on the laptop side, what would you pick as your ideal laptop? What do you currently use as a laptop? Uh, I use a MacBook Pro. I, I like
2: the hardware. I think it's, it's a powerful laptop. It, it's the best you can get, obviously, from Apple. And I I really am not a fan of the touch bar. I'm constantly accidentally hitting things on the touch bar. So it kind of drives me crazy.
1: Oh, you do have a touch bar yeah. model. okay? When I updated my MacBook Pro earlier this year, I did not get the touch bar model. I got the previous year's model without the touch bar because I had heard so much about that. And I think it was like $200 more for the touch bar. And it didn't seem very useful.
2: Yeah, where it's really frustrating is, I'm I'm the kind of person who frequently intentionally hits the escape key instead of hitting cancel on a dialogue box for example. And so I tend to have my hand kind of hovering a little bit close to to that side of the or that area of the keyboard. And the problem that I find is I'm constantly accidentally either hitting escape Or sometimes if I'm in a browser, I accidentally hit the back button because right next to escape, there's a little left arrow. And so I'm right in the middle of typing something on a page. And then all of a sudden, you know, I see the screen flash. I've got an external monitor hooked up. And so I look up and I'm like, whoa, what the heck just happened? I was in the middle of typing something and now I'm back on the previous page. That happens to me all the time and it drives me crazy.
1: Good design, Apple. Yeah. If I were to choose today, I would probably get a MacBook Air. I had the very first MacBook Air in 2008, and it really was one of my favorite Macs. I like that form factor. I like the shape. And now that it has a retina display, it's light. I don't really care that much about the weight because I don't carry my laptop around. It's it's like my second Mac that I use for testing and sometimes when I want to work and not at my desk. But I've always liked the MacBook Air. There's something about it that... You know, ever since Steve Jobs pulled that out of a Manila envelope in 2008 to present it, you know, that that has just remained like one of those Macs that I I have a personal attachment to.
2: Yeah, it's iconic. Well, and like you said, I mean, the fact that it's so light makes it really convenient for people who lug a a laptop around with them all the time. You may not necessarily want to have a MacBook Pro if you're just going to take notes on it at a conference or things like that. So um, the MacBook Air is very nice from that perspective.
1: So one thing that I looked at in this article is the question of buying additional storage and RAM when you buy a Mac. Unfortunately, most Macs don't let you add RAM on your own. I believe you still can on the 27-inch iMac, but not on the 21.5-inch iMac. You can on the Mac Mini, but it's not easy. They suggest that you go through an authorized service center or an Apple store to do it. It's not impossible, but it's not like an earlier Mac Mini, where you would just basically screw off a round thing on the back and slip your RAM in. The problem with RAM and storage is, let was take an example. If you buy the 21.5-inch Retina iMac, which is what I have that I updated last year, it comes with eight gigabytes of RAM. And if you want to add another eight, which I did, it's $200 more. This is a computer whose base price is $1,300. So $200 is about one-sixth, one-seventh of the price of the computer just to add RAM. And and that just always feels, I don't know, uncomfortable.
2: Yeah, yeah. Apple does tend to charge too much for RAM, and that's something that's always been kind of a complaint of people when they're comparing, you know, apples and oranges, you know, the, the Macs to, to Windows PCs. Honestly, that's always kind of bothered me personally, too, but... It's worth it. I mean, you know, it's 200 bucks. It's it's It costs you more than it's going to cost you to do the RAM upgrade yourself uh, if you have the capability in your Mac model. But it's going to be worth it. I mean, if you run a lot of apps at a time, which I certainly do, you need a lot of RAM. And so just go for more RAM than you might even think you need, especially if you use a lot of apps or or you're doing things that require a lot of RAM, like video editing and things like that.
1: And so the same goes for storage. Go from 256 to 512 gigabytes of flash storage, and you're paying about the same upgrade price. You can even get a one terabyte SSD in the 13-inch MacBook Pro if you pony up an additional $800. Oh, ouch. Yeah. I See, not many people really need that. And, and the, what's important to realize when you're talking about storage is, okay, you need to have storage for the operating system, for your apps and for your documents. But if you need to store a lot of large files, you're better off buying an external hard drive or even an external SSD that have come down in prices. I don't remember the prices Amazon had on their Black Friday sale, but one of the SSD manufacturers was selling fairly large SSDs at a decent price. One thing I recommend to people is when you're buying a a new Mac, the, the way to calculate storage is look what you've got on your current Mac, how much you've used, and then double it. Because over time, your apps are going to get bigger, you're going to get more files, you don't want to be in that situation where you run out of storage on your computer, unless it's a an iMac and you can plug in an external hard drive. I also strongly recommend SSDs. I don't want to use a spinning disk in a computer ever again. You can get a slow hard drive on some Mac models. You can get a Fusion drive on some, but go for the SSD, get an external hard drive. You can get a four terabyte external self-powered hard drive for a hundred bucks. Plug that into the back of your iMac put some gaffer tape on to hold it on and you'll have all the external storage you need for next to nothing. That's one of the things that I
2: can't recommend enough is you want your computer to be fast and it's worth it to get an SSD. Not, not to mention if you've got a portable computer and you're carrying it around while you use it, That's a really bad thing to do if you've got a spinning drive in your computer. So if you've got any portable machine, you absolutely want to make sure that you're getting an SSD.
1: I have a very old iPod, and I believe it was a 40 gigabyte iPod. And at one point I dropped it. The hard drive was spinning at the time, and... It still works now, but I can only copy about 15 gigabytes of data until it gets to a sector that was damaged. And so that can happen on your hard drive in your computer. If you, as you say, a laptop with a hard drive, I I think maybe only the very entry level MacBook Pro still has a hard drive. So by all means, get an SSD. I'll link in the show notes to an article I wrote some months ago about the different types of drives. So you can better understand the difference between a hard drive, a fusion drive and an SSD. So it's Christmas, and if you're going to buy a new Mac, maybe drop us a comment on the show page and let us know what you're going to go for.
0: Until then, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like,